So, Stephen, um, we may be starting in a very broad way with a question like, what is so hard to be human these days? You know, and I come out of the evidence-based therapy wing where people went through an era where they didn't ask questions like that, where we were shoving uh, human beings into five out of nines and four out of sevens inside some crazy latent disease assumption that medicalizes human suffering and says that, you know, basically there's something wrong with you if life is hard. And uh, we ought to categorize that. And if we get rid of that latent disease, then you'll be able to show up and be human. And to me, that's uh, uh, created worldwide harm Mm -hmm. uh, in the name of science that was needless, wasn't meant to be harmful, but it's turned out to be harmful. And so if we come back to these more fundamental questions of even what we mean to be human and what are the special challenges, that's something that uh, uh, the acceptance and commitment therapy work that I'm connected to in the contextual behavioral science community with the larger development community has taken very seriously to the point that we've spent years trying to figure out even how language and cognition works, how emotion works, what is attention, what is mindfulness what a sense of self, what about values, et cetera. Um, and so to cut back to your question, if you want to add to the answers that are there from our wisdom traditions and from our important clinical and literature traditions and so forth, this kind of more process-oriented science-based approach lands in with, with a bit of an answer that's inside the ACT work, acceptance and commitment therapy work, which is that we are the species that, Yes, learned how to learn from our experience. Um, That happened about half a billion years ago, and every organism that evolved since the Cambrian forward can do that, which means that we can carry our past experiences into the present. Uh, We're not special in that way. Uh, You know, spiders and snakes and, uh, you know, jellyfish don't do that, and sponges don't do that, but for the last half a billion years, we learned a lot about uh, how to bring our history forward into the present, we as living creatures. But then somewhere around 200,000, 400,000, 2 million, 3 million years old, it depends on what the hominids were doing, we came up with this thing that you and I are doing right now, Serge, which is talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And that kind of cognitive process so overwhelmed our ability to be with ourselves and to learn from our history and move towards you know, what brings, uh, what moves our lives forward that, you know, we can be uh, people with everything that all the rest of living creation needs to succeed. Uh, You know, people who love us and food and water and shelter and all the rest and still be uh, thinking about the guns in the bottom drawer. Mm. And uh, every day people check out. So what makes it hard to be human, I think, is, is, the things that interfere with the process of being with yourself as a historical conscious human being and being able to note what your history gives you in the form of emotions, bodily sensations, urges, predispositions, memories, and still be able to direct your attention towards what brings meaning and purpose in your life and how to build habits of behavior and mind around that instead of around running away, fixing problem solving, repairing, you can start living when you're different, but you can't start now. Mm -hmm. That whole toxic uh, brew, 
which frankly the evidence-based folks have uh, had a hand in accelerating and spreading around the world of this idea that you have something that keeps you uh, from living in the uh, I would like to be part of a scientific uh, community that helps us get back to something that's more sensible, which is answering the question you just asked. How can I be fully human, be with myself and with my uh, fellow human beings in ways that uh, allow me to create a life worth living? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to maybe just simply repeat that question. How can I be with myself? How can I be fully with myself? present uh, with myself and with fellow human beings and create a life worth living and saying that this is the cornerstone, the foundation of our lives as individuals, uh, our actions vis-a-vis other people, and specifically as therapists of how we would envision uh, helping people who come to see us. Well, one of the things that the ACT community brings to the table to this larger group of um, sort of the deeper clinical traditions and the wisdom traditions is a science answer uh, that is holding up pretty well. I mean, there's about a thousand studies on it right now, uh, which is uh, this core concept of psychological flexibility. Mm -hmm. Psychological flexibility is really one thing, but it has kind of six features to it at least, which can be clustered into three things, which collapse down to one thing. So I'm going to walk backwards. I'm going to start from the one I just said, psychological flexibility, which is, if I give a word for it, it's um, how to be in the present moment fully and without defense uh, and direct your attention towards what, consciously direct your attention towards what brings meaning and purpose. The, the, The three elements would be, well, one is learning how to be more open with your own uh, feelings, bodily sensations, memories, and so forth, how we can stop running away from our history, mm-hmm. how we can learn to watch our analytic judgmental mode of mind as it does what it does, problem solve, interpret, evaluate, etc. but bring to that process something more like just observing it, kind of more with this some sunset mode of mind, I call it, this wow mode of mind, where we have the capacity within us simply to observe, describe, and appreciate, but we've fed these problem-solving uses of mind so heavily that when we look at our own bodily sensations, our emotions, our memories, we immediately get into the, the stance of which ones we want, which ones we don't want, which ones we want to get rid of, which ones we want to diminish, augment, etc. We start treating ourselves as a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that cluster of emotional openness, openness and sensation and experience, but also this sunset mode of mind of this witnessing, observing, describing, appreciating, this wow mode of mind with regard to your own thoughts. Uh, So there's a little bit of distance between the person who's observing and the chatter that's going on. That's the openness process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The uh, awareness process is to be able then to allocate your attention flexibly, fluidly, and voluntarily towards what is of a stake here broadening or narrowing sticking and moving like what are you attending to and we live our lives in the now we have thoughts about the future we have memories of the past but we can disappear into the future and past when we start treating our lives as a problem to be solved because we have to figure out where did we come from where are we going blah 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 like you would if you had a broken part on a car why did how to get like this and how can i fix it 
and not being able to simply come into the moment. But then to do it consciously. You know, we are conscious human beings. You and I are talking here, Serge. Yep. And I'm aware of your awareness. I'm watching you shake your head. You're aware of mine. That's where the human journey begins. I think language and cognition comes out of that moment. And we've written about that, of how uh, cooperation came first, not cognition. The cooperation came out from the kind of monkey we are. I mean, it came from this uh, tribal, you know, small group as the focus of evolution, the cooperative primates. But so coming into consciousness, not me alone in the corner conscious, but the we-ness of awareness that's inside the human community. And so that's the second pillar of aware of awareness. So we have openness or awareness. And then the third pillar is active engagement. And there we ask the question of, well, if I were to show up, if I were to be here, if my, if my history didn't belong, if I'm not broken, if I am whole, then what? Well, I don't know. What do you care about? I mean, that, that's a choice place where now, not because you have to, not because there's a wagging finger, not because mama will only like you if, not because of any of these kind of avoidant, entangled, fused, judgmental processes, but just out of our choice as human beings that we get to say, these are the qualities of my life that I want to put into the world. These are my qualities, the qualities of being and doing that I want to put into my behavior and uh, my life and the lives of those who I love. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these adverbial qualities of um, what we seek, not in the future, like we're going to have it like an object, but what we seek in the sense of how we try to embody a way of being with ourselves and others that we hold dear, whether it's being loving, being kind, being aware, being genuine, contributing, creating, supporting, uh, showing compassion. I mean, all these qualities that we can, by choice, put into our behavior, even when the world fights us. You know, when you know, I'm thinking of like a Nelson Mandela who is putting uh, love and justice into the world, even though when he's in a cage. You know, and then when he's left let out, you can see what he's been doing there, and he, he's not going to say all you bastards are going to pay. Mm-hmm. He's going to say something that comes out of the work that he was doing with himself. So what by choice do you want to have reflected in your, in your moments of uh, action? And then the final one, how do you build habits I and mean, how do you build patterns that are repeated and become larger that are organized around that and not about, uh, fixing or running away or uh, being a good baby or, you know, uh, getting applause or grabbing or holding or, you know, achieving or, but no, it is about manifesting and building habits around it. So even when you're not w- w- watching, you tend towards the things that you really hold dear, uh, these qualities of, uh, of behavior that you would want to put into your life by choice. Mm-hmm. That's active. That's what I mean by active engagement. So it's a long answer. I'm sorry for the riff, but uh, we're talking about openness, awareness, and active engagement, which means acceptance and diffusion as flexibility processes, being in the now and consciousness, values and committed action. But uh, 
What, what strikes you know, me? I think that's how we kind of show up in our lives and do what mat- do what matters, and that's our challenge as human beings is to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What strikes me as I'm listening to you is that actually what makes uh, that uh, committed engagement, uh, active engagement possible is actually to have the openness and awareness. Yeah. And, uh, and exactly so that, right. that uh, you know, the shortcut, trying the shortcut to go to, uh, you know, the committed action without the openness and awareness. You can't do it. Yeah. You can't do it. You try to do it. In fact, we've done research on this, Serge. If you train just, uh, you know, being here in the now, but then focusing on what matters, as opposed to also giving people skills to open up, to feel on purpose, to mm-hmm. watch your mind, to witness it, to watch, to sort of see it with a little bit of perspective or separation from the observer and what's observed when your mind is going. If you do that, what happens is that People hit places that are painful and are difficult because if you go towards where you care, you go towards where you hurt. Mm -hmm. The places that you care are exactly the places where past betrayals, failures, uh, things you've done even in your life that you're ashamed of. It's exactly where all those things live so that as you walk towards what brings meaning and purpose, you walk towards what brings vulnerability. And if you don't know how to open up, you will then close down and you will essentially rip yourself off in the service of feeding your avoidance. You'll stop loving and uh, uh, to avoid the pain of betrayal. You'll stop risking uh, 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 the possibility of success in order to avoid the possibility of failure. I mean, you, you, you get in your own way. So you're right. It's called acceptance and commitment therapy because it's this sandwich, this two-sided sheet, this Oreo cookie, you know, that's Mm -hmm. not, one thing, it's the other. I tell my clients sometimes, write down on a sheet of paper all the things that you'd really want to be about in your life. <laughs> Just do it. And then I, I ask them to write on the other side, writing all the things that are really painful to you, that really interfere, that made it really hard, that you really struggle with, and they do it. And then I ask them to look at both sides and to realize, oh, my God, these are kind of flip sides of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, here's what you've been doing. You've been trying to erase or get rid of that painful side. I'll give you a deal. You can do it. But you're going to lose the other side. You know, you can do it. I have, in our early, early trials of ACT, one of the first big trials, we had a a trial with polysubstance abusing heroin addicts who were on methadone and were still using. And, you know, these are folks who die under bridges. These are folks who just... And one of our clients, our early clients, was a man who had um, been so high that he's lying on the couch and his daughter's being perpetrated on the back bedroom and he knows it. Mm. And he can't get enough concern to get up and walk back and stop it. You know, so, and he walked through that. I mean, he was a, a brave soul. But what I'm saying is, is that in the interests of, feel goodism Mm -hmm. so dramatically interfere with your capacity to to risk and care in areas that sometimes are hard for us that you can violate your values that profoundly and in small ways we've all done it when we've shut down the possibility of love out of fear of the possibility of rejection or things of that kind so it's a wise question you ask, Serge. I think it's an important one. 
It's a two-sided coin, a two-sided sheet of paper. And as you talk, um, um, you talk the language of value, you talk the language of what's really important, you talk the language of what makes us who we are, the language of meaning and purpose. But um, very often those conversations are based on uh, either wishful thinking or uh, something that is uh, more philosophical and evidence-based. And so... uh, uh, you are part of an evidence-based tradition, and you're very proud of being part of that and uh, being in a science-related uh, community. So uh, maybe you want to say a little bit more about how this uh, articulates around uh, the science and practice of psychotherapy as you see it. Yeah, the sci- you know, science uh, uh, kind of pulls for... Um, a way of looking at things in a way that sometimes gets in the way, but not always. Uh, And I think if we can harness our science towards the processes of change that liberate human beings, we have a way of doing evidence-based therapy that isn't putting therapists into this kind of clown suit of having to follow protocols for syndromes. And, you know, the first session is like this and the second session is like that. And, uh, I just want to interrupt you for a moment. I love that expression of uh, putting therapists in the clown suit of following procedures for syndromes. I mean, it's a very, very, uh, uh, very powerful image there. Yeah, I want want science to liberate us as therapists to do what matters for our clients in the most powerful way we can, guided by the best uh, cultural tradition that's most progressive, I think, that we've come up with, which is science. I mean, art and literature is very important, but, you know, is, is Shakespeare a poor uh, playwriter because he was hundreds of years ago? You'd say, of course not. But if you had any physicist who's talking about the physics of 100 or 200 years ago, you'd say, was that a, a less adequate physics? They'd say, of course it is. And so how, how come just because when we're dealing the, with the complexity of the human heart that, that now we don't get to benefit from that? I mean, it must mean we're doing science in a way that does, isn't empowering. So let's change how we do the science. And so the uh, contextual behavioral science community, I mean, for goodness sake, Serge, we're behaviorists. I, I'll let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> Please don't hang up or turn off the podcast. You know, <laughs> you're a behaviorist in most uh, contexts is like going into a room and saying, I like child pornography and then expecting to be heard. And, <laughs> but, you know, we, but there was something in that behavioral deal, which, and I, it's what I signed on to. I mean, I was a behaviorist because of Walden too. Because this utopian vision that if we knew what the processes were, we could put them into our families and our homes and our churches and our communities to liberate human lives. And uh, from rat, from rats to Walden too. That's the you know I'm a, a kind of a I came into psychology out of the humanistic wing. It was Maslow, people like that, or Pearls, or even some of the Eastern ideas. A child of the '60s grew up in California. That, but but I thought no, unguided. You know, where's how's that going to be progressive? And the answer that I focused on is that we need to understand the core processes and do it scientifically. So, yeah, we have 250 randomized trials on ACT. That's great. We got about 2,000 studies overall. That's that's great. But what's really kind of cool about the ACT stuff is what I just said to you, that acceptance, diffusion, flexible attention to the now, 
from this perspective, taking sense of self, linking to values and building habits of action around it. Those six psychological flexibility concepts, those are things that relate to our conversation right now. Mm -hmm. They relate to what's going on in my body right now. They relate to the next client you're going to see. And if you can learn to make the reads and see the processes, then here's the problem. Here's the wonderful thing that uh, science can give you, I think, is they can give you proximal indications of change that can be relied on to be important in the long run. And therapists, uh, you know, the single worst bit of science evidence about therapists, I'm going to give you the worst bit of evidence that everybody knows, everybody's heard it, and nobody believes it. The more experience you have as a therapist, it does not predict your competence as a therapist. Mm -hmm. There is no other area of life that you can name where practice doesn't lead to improvement, except, <laughs> except areas where you have bad feedback. If you just went out and shoot, shooting basketballs every day, Serge, you're going to be better and better, but not if you're blindfolded and if I put the earmuffs on you and I say shoot a thousand balls a day, it won't make any difference because you'll get no feedback from that process. Therapists get our clients saying we're doing better. They see symptom change. They have people saying, now I'm ready to go, and none of those things predict long-term outcomes very well. And we get shaped into approval from our clients or into – Approval from some freaking, uh, you know, managed care organization, the symptom change is adequate to, you know, get paid, whatever the thing is. So instead, what if we had a science that was process focused and said, here are the things that move. So, for example, we've shown by session two or three, if clients start saying things like I'm having the thought that I'm bad instead of just I'm bad, that predicts what's going to happen at follow up. Because you, you begin to re see right there, even in the conversation, the person's beginning to look at their thoughts, not just from their thoughts. Mm -hmm. Or when they, you know, you know, I'm having a feeling that mm -hmm. instead of, oh, I'm so angry, I'm so anxious. No, right. But so, so what you're talking about is uh, being in tune with the process. Yes. And paying and, attention. And not just the to... process way we normally mean it in the sense of the interpersonal process that's very, no, very important. No, no. Yeah. But change process, because yeah. the interpersonal process models the change process, but you better read the change process. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about the process in the sense of how the person works. And so uh, that's where you're, you're talking about the person, you know, the example you gave is instead of I'm bad, I, I see myself as bad. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of I'm anxious, is I'm feeling anxious right now. Mm -hmm. it, it's subtle it's subtle but it isn't the words you know the word police have shown up it's not right. like we're going to teach our, our clients some sort of right way to talk or something it's not like that we're going to open up their hearts and minds and not to say it that way our hearts and minds and we're going to model it even we're going to be with it ourselves as therapists uh, because our therapist our clients are reading us every moment And they will save us from our own avoidance process at the cost of their own therapy if you're not careful. But that we come into this therapy interaction creating a space that is open, aware, and active, and that we will model, instigate, and support those processes. And so if I come there and I can read it in myself and in my client, and if together we can uh, move towards this 
uh, this alternative uh, mode of mind and way of being, we're doing things that are helpful to us as therapists, helpful to the client and helpful to the interaction between us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this feels very related to that notion of uh, self as context, as opposed to say self as content. Yeah. Yeah. We've done science on it, that there's actually, you know, when you have language, you begin to evaluate yourself just like you'd evaluate anything, you know, and if you took any object in the room, look, grab it, look at it. I bet you you can criticize it. Just do it. And I bet you, you can find <laughs> chips. You can find, Oh, that's so out of fashion. No, that's yeah. dirty. Be washed or, you know, that was cheap or that's getting worn or whatever it is. Well, we can do the same thing with ourselves. Right. So we have this kind of, when we treat ourselves as a conceptualized object, then we're into criticizing ourselves or defending ourselves or, or, you know, that is a clown suit. And it doesn't matter whether it's sweet smelling or ugly, whether it's positive or negative. You know, we have a national demonstration of what narcissism look like, looks like right now in the <laughs> United States. And that doesn't look any more attractive than I'm the worst of the worst and the lowest of the low. I mean, it's just two faces of the same thing. And yet, in that very moment, who's noticing that? Who's watching that? Who are you anyway? And you catch this bit of this this dimensionless piece of I here now am aware, not I as an object reflection, but the fromness of awareness that I'm like a, a table with objects put on it. I'm not the objects I'm moving around. So I, I notice the context for it. Yeah. I'm noticing that unfolding of the process uh, that is me, but I don't identify with this process because I'm, I'm identifying with observing that process unfolding. Yeah. So if you catch the observing, witnessing, noticing, being part, the other thing you catch is you catch the witnessing, noticing, being part of others. And guess what? At that level, we are very much the same because there's nothing to that other than I here now and you there then. I mean, it's not a thing to be evaluated. It's just mm -hmm. a space to be embodied or, or, you know, it's like air to be, to be breathed. breathed. So, um, so the uh, self-context, and there's many, many other words, but this perspective taking itself, observing self, noticing self, but not turning into an object or something to be defended. Well, what I mean is to, is to settle into the here-ness and now-ness of awareness itself as enough, you know, as whole, as complete, as, you know, as... Uh, it's not broken. It's it, it's not partial. It's it, it's you know like when you're here, you're here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When it's now, it's now. There there isn't a, a crack or an addition or a subtraction. It's mm -hmm. is, and so the is of awareness uh, that's afforded to us by human consciousness connects us in consciousness to the is of others. I think we really are conscious and your mama looked in your eyes and said, Oh, you sweet baby and dragged you into that consciousness and was looking for and seeing not just that you were aware, but that you were aware of her awareness of you. Even children have a, a beginning, very young infants have the beginning theory of mind skills where we get even before human language that there's a, an awareness and an awareness of another and an interconnection between those awareness. 
So that's the space that if we can go there, you know, the mindfulness traditions help us go there. And, but we can do some, and the clinical traditions help us go there. All of them, I think. Mm-hmm. I think just love and friendship helps you go there. I mean, I, I ask my clients, I say, think of somebody who really powerfully moved you. And they say, okay, somebody who, empower, you know, lifted you up in your life. And I say, okay, don't tell me who it is. I say, I'm going to ask you a few questions. D- did you feel accepted for who you are by that person? Did you feel constantly judged or was judgment far away? And were you, when you were together, were you able to be there or you're always kind of looking at the watch and only being half there? And when you looked at that person and they saw you seeing them, were you sensing that the two of you were aware that you're conscious human beings together here communicating? And did what you, mer- mat- did what you care about matter to that other person or would they ride over what you deeply care about without a second thought? And could you be together in ways that fit the opportunity of the moment in a way that was flexible or was it always one way, my way or the highway? And universally, people answer the six questions in a particular way. Well, what that tells me is in our loving, empowering, supportive relationships, we already have modeled these mindfulness and commitment processes. We've already have modeled these psychological flexibility processes. And we know it. We know it in the way that we feel uplifted by it. And when we bring that same mode of mind to ourselves, that kind of witnessing, open, aware, diffused, present, values-based, let's go, let's create, let's move, that same sense, you know, we lift ourselves up too, and we lift up people around us. So, yeah, I think this uh, this core pivot piece of this uh, sense of self as awareness per se, not awareness of anything, just awareness per se, it can um, be transformational, I think, for uh, individuals and for communities, for human beings. I really like the context in which you're talking about the awareness per se, uh, bringing it back to the mother looking at the baby and say, oh, you sweet baby. And yeah. so the awareness per se, very often we have the tendency to think of it as something that is very alone, like an ascetic ah. pursuit uh, yeah. that is almost cutting yourself off from the distractions of the world, including of connection. And the context in which you put it is actually that the, that context of connection and of loving connection is actually the fertile ground where it can blossom. That's uh, awesome way to say it, Serge, and you're, you're absolutely right on. And this is one thing I do worry about. The, you know, the West is pretty good at taking really good things and turning them to things that are not so good and the idea of saying, uh, you take the care of the kids, i got to go meditate. You know, like, ah, yeah, no, we've got another form of uh, selfishness, you know, the mindfulness junkies. Hey, I need a retreat, I, you know, where, you know, we've kind of lose our way with this uh, meditation kind of thing that we're doing, even with that. I saw somewhere, I literally saw somebody selling a mindfulness burger at a, a, a local <laughs> Literally, come on. <laughs> nothing. So I'm not, I don't want to beat up on mindfulness. I'm just saying what you're pointing to uh, is that uh, awareness is social. Mm-hmm. And 
psychological liberation isn't about me alone in the corner being able to be free. It's about us lifting ourselves up in such a way that we're able to, you know, create lives of meaning and purpose as a human community. And gosh knows, if you look at the television tonight, you're, you're going to think that's important. Because um, if we can't figure out how to do that, uh, we know where the kind of analytical, judgmental mode of mind can take us. And we've challenged ourselves technologically. You know, you can see suffering around the world in re- real time. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember when they wouldn't put pictures of dead soldiers in the newspaper from the Vietnam War. You know, now you can see people shot live. And our kids are seeing that. And this constant flow of judgment and of criticism and of that sense of being out of control and change happening so fast. Mm-hmm. So to create modern minds for this modern world that we've created by our science and technology, fruits of our problem-solving mode of mind, we better work on how to just be, you know, how to put your feet on the ground and to show up in community, in consciousness with others. And together, what can we do to evolve us as human beings to move uh, forward and, and, and evolve on purpose, uh, creating these psychological and cultural kind of processes that will lift us up. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of, go back to your earlier question, that's the kind of science I'm interested in. <laughs> I'm interested in the kind that sort of give you a, a sign of approval, you know, like you're a side of beef or something, you know, this is yeah. the evidence base, you know, oh, please. But uh, the kind that actually opens up what uh, therapists and other behavior change folks and just individuals reading their self-help books and so forth, what opens people up to uh, being able to evolve on purpose. Mm-hmm. And so in that context, uh, what therapy is, um, is a training, a sharing with the client of our understanding of these processes yeah. uh, as opposed to a problem solving about diagnosis or about some syndromes. That's exactly right. I mean, there's a form of diagnosis in the sense of noticing the processes that are needing work. Because nobody comes in but zeros in all these processes. They have some strengths and they have some weaknesses. You know, but I'm with you 100%. That's, that's our the, the goal. The way I, I say it, I have a little acronym, which is uh, instigate, model, and reinforce it from, toward, and with it. And the it are these flexibility processes. And I have to confess, if you actually wrote it down and underlined the right letters, it's because it makes an acronym that links back to my theory of language and cognition called relational frame theory, because the acronym is I'm RFT with it. (laughs) uh, That silliness aside, you know, instigate, model, and support. What I mean by that is not that, you know, we as therapists have to be like the queen of psychological flexibility. No, we just have to know that it's of importance and bring that into the room. So if you say something to a client like, you know, I almost feel overwhelmed by hearing how painful that was. And I'm having thoughts like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to give you what you need. And I tell you what, you know, I will walk through hell if that's what's needed. You and I together. Mm-hmm. So try to be of use to you right here. You know, you know what I'm saying? Where mm-hmm. you're not expect walking in as the queen, the master, the, no, as a, fellow human being with your own issues 
and then by doing that, instigating it. So you actually note when people are avoiding, you note when people are getting entangled, you not judge and wag a finger, but you help them notice these the ebb and flow of these processes so that they can detect which direction they're moving in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to support it in the sense of actually bringing what we know about, you know, uh, kernels of interventions. There are metaphors, exercises, things that can be done. It isn't just a, a random conversation. There are methods and there are techniques and they get tested out. I don't like whole protocols being put on people like a big heavy book being thumped under your head. But I, I do like guidance about, you know, what are the, pro- the procedures that we've learned, these little micro things, these small things. Uh, like, for example, there's research on good metaphors. There's research on language use. There's, you know, research on short exercises, on mindfulness homework, etc. And we can use that to move these core processes. And so we essentially come in then instigating, modeling, and supporting as a new vision of what evidence-based therapy is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where we use the evidence on processes of change to work with our own psychology as therapists to, to target that with our clients, but also to put it in the betweenness mm-hmm. between ourselves and our clients. Because if you ever find yourself saying something like, you shouldn't be so fused, you know, you just need to shut up. Because what you're saying is you're targeting entanglement with judgmental thought by using judgmental thought. Well, that's not going to work. That's like trying to create peace by war. Good luck with that. You know, we have a history of that. It's not what happens. So uh, just because you see the process and, and you know something that's important, you also need to embody it and bring it into space and then use procedures that can move it, but that are consistent with it, that mm-hmm. actually, uh, you know, don't uh, internally contradict what you say you care about by using methods that suggest that the client will be uh, only able to move forward when they fix themselves, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind of vision of evidence-based therapy. And I, but, and I think we're med- headed in that way now really fast, now that the DSM is thankfully beginning to collapse. Uh, even the NIMH doesn't want to fund studies focused on it anymore. Right. And, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, we can um, get together the clinicians, the philosophers, the clients, the people who really care about human complexity with the scientists, and let's make a, let's make a deal about how we can work together and get in harness as a whole community. Mm-hmm. That's you know, part of what I think the ACT folks have been trying to do. We've had, I think, some beneficial effects on CBT and on some of the evidence-based therapy, but we're actually sometimes listed as part of the humanistic and more existential wings, which I kind of like too, because mm-hmm. you can kind of hear it in my talk. I mean, what we're yeah. up to, what we're up to, what we're about, what we're really trying to create, even as behaviorists of all people. Yeah. People don't know that, you know, there's a deep connection between things like gestalt therapy and behavioral psychology and so forth. The people don't know the history, even their own history. So this is not so unusual if you go back. But uh, uh, it's just another modern manifestation of it. Mm-hmm. So so this seems like a very nice way to, to end. I just want to check if it feels right for you or if there's something you might want to add. You know, I guess I would, the only thing I would add is uh, an invitation. If there was something in here that resonated, if you hadn't heard about ACT and 
if you uh, are suddenly surprised to find that uh, the behaviorists are behind the scenes trying to create this, uh, you know, check it out. Check it out. I'm not doing it to try to get people to buy books and focus attention. I'm not saying that. Uh, just look and see. And then the second thing is, if it moves you, uh, you know, we would like to hear your voice. And uh, if you uh, come and hang out with the folks, the uh, Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences, the group, or if you just want to connect with me, you actually go to stephenchays.com if you don't mind that little commercial. And I'll put you on my clinical list. I'm not going to sell things to you. I'm just going to stay in a little bit of communication. But my invitation would be if there's something in here that sounds resonant, if that kind of science sounds cool, uh, we would welcome your um, involvement and participation and hearing your voice. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, sir. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.